From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this week with my longtime friends and collaborators, Wharton colleagues, Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. Eric Bradlow is away this week, sadly, but he will be back. Some combination of us are here every week to do this. We're going to go for two hours. We've been going for two hours for almost 10 years. Gents, we're about a month away. Not not nine years, almost nine years. We're a month away from our nine-year anniversary. For the last three, approximately, we've been virtually most of the time. COVID changed our world, and we're coming to you via Zoom as we usually do. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we usually do. The show will go up on SiriusXM in the morning. Will be replayed a few times over the course of the week, and we'll get the podcast up tomorrow as well. Adi, Shane, this is the last week of the football season, at least unless you're counting XFL, which is going to waste no time and get started next week. But the last week of the regular football season, in fact, Sunday felt different. We haven't had a Sunday without football since I don't know July or something, and it was a sad. It was a sad Sunday afternoon, even if you're not parking on a couch for three or six or nine hours. It's nice to have it around. It's nice. And it was gone. It, so we have to embrace it, gents. We have to embrace it. We have one more to go. What are your thoughts? I'm sure you've got many thoughts on the world of sports, but let's start with the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm super excited about it. I think it's, you know, it feels like a really kind of intriguing, even matchup. I really, you know, I, I've talked myself into both the Eagles and Chiefs a lot over the last week or so. Um, you Is know, that true? I, mean, I, I think the kind of, you know, I think the, uh, the, the line kind of reflects that it's, it's, it, it should be, a, I'm, I'm hoping for a really exciting kind of very competitive game. I don't know. Um, so can, I, let me, let me, let me say that I, I, I missed the show last week because I was teaching and I listened to at least some of it. And I listened to the interview y'all did with Eric eager. And, um, and I thought it would one, I thought it was great. Eager's friggin' fantastic. But it was interesting for me to hear that because I didn't know where he's going to land. I'm listening to his analysis, you know, for whatever, half an hour. And I thought in almost everything he said that it leaned a little bit Kansas City. But in the end, he's like, yeah, I'm kind of with the market. I think Philly minus one, minus one and a half is about right. So I did. I, I, I would have loved to have been able to push him and say, hold on. You basically sold me. I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in a hotel room listening to this and I'm getting sold on KC with all his rationales. So what were the rationales that sold me? I think um, I think you basically well, I mean, said you don't have an edge, right? The market is just so good. Well, that's that's fine. That's fine. But all the same, I thought that I thought that I thought his analysis leaned that way. I thought the difference between Mahomes and Hertz is one of them. I thought the difference in Reed versus Sirianni, well, the Reed Reed, Reed he the, talked the, about the coaching you know, game, thing was, I game think planning stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean Mahomes, you I mean I think Mahomes at full health versus Hertz, I mean that's a pretty easy to compare you know i think that's a pretty clear comparison too mahomes at not full health muddy less Z, obvious kind of comparison less obvious that's bit. right um, but also I like mean, the, know, the, eagles, kinda... the eagles unproven ability to play from behind now, maybe they don't have to but there's some chance they have to play from behind yeah. so uh I, there all this came up in the conversation but then he netted out at eagles minus one and yeah. I, i'm like i don't know i think he sold me along the way he sold me i'm i i for i mean Whatever, maybe I agree with the number, but if I had to pick a side, I'm going to pick the Chiefs. 
Adi, yeah, we cut you off. We were trying mean, to like jump. One of the, 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 the argument that I that most would most convince me the Chiefs, I think, is is kind of the co you know the coaching thing that like you know I mean. Andy Reid certainly like, you know, especially with the extra week to prepare, like is incredibly, you know, I, I think, you know, does have just an experience, a proven kind of experience sort of like advantage mm-hmm. or Nick Sirianni and just in terms of the kind of inventiveness of the schemes that he can kind of come up with, you know, once, mm-hmm. it, you know, I mean, Eric, I remember did make kind of the point that like in terms of like maybe kind of in-game strategic decision-making, Sirianni is is kind of like shown yeah, a you know real demonstrable kind of a, edge you know yes. ability for that and you know that obviously could be relevant as well but you know you know to the extent I, I do kind of feel like you know kind of probably the pre before the game starts coaching advantage prep advantage is probably gr- you know a greater predictor of outcome than sort of like the in-game in-game stuff decision making I, I think one of the things you talked about was that you got you got two weeks. And that is something that you don't have very often yeah. in, uh, in, a, in a game, in a football season. And that Andy Reid is more capable of redesigning, retooling his, his offense, if you will, his defense, I don't know which, to take advantage of that time. Um, but something actually we've talked a lot about in basketball and how like playoff basketball is different mm-hmm. from season basketball because – you have an actually an opportunity to really think about who your opponent is, play them once and adjust in football. You don't get that. Right. So you're going to get one game and that's just how it's going to be. Um, I, I don't really, you know, I, I don't have anything. I don't I feel like I have nothing smart to, to offer other than the line. I mean, it's on so many paper su- summaries of the, of the teams, they do sort of look exactly like what we're getting or what we're predicting. Yeah. Um, I wonder, no one, everyone talked about, uh, talks about Mahomes injury or lack of thereof. Is there any concern about Hertz is, is mm-hmm. shoulder? Is that something that's talked about or concerned or how is that figuring out? Uh, play? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I think we, we touched about it a little bit last week. I mean, I think we didn't get enough, op- you know, he looked okay, but like, you know, it, it was kind of like a game situation. Like, I, I don't think we really got a good, observation in that San Francisco in that NFC championship game on just, you know, where Hertz is at in terms of, you know, his health and kind of just, you know, whether he, well, he's and, and Shane, and that's, it is different with Mahomes. I mean, we, I think Mahomes performed better than anybody thought he was going to given the yeah. injury. And now he's got two more weeks. So it's three weeks instead of one after the initial injury. And so in that way, I think there's this uncertainty, but there's a state of the world in which Philadelphia is really handicapped because of that injury and that we don't think that really exists on the KC side. See, I'm just even further talking myself into the KC side of this thing. But one other thing y'all did last week that I, I, I didn't hear the first time, but I heard y'all refer, refer to it. And that was your confidence interval around. So Adi, you agree with the market on the, on the mean, on the point estimate um, minus one to the Eagles, but um, y'all had this wonderful thing about what, what do you think that, what do you think your 95% confidence interval would be around the score difference? Oh, and, oh yeah. And y'all and my sense was that I think y'all ask Eric and Eric said, ah, you know, plus or minus 14. And Eric said, that's right on top of what we said. And then Shane chimed in and said, uh, mine was even bigger yeah. because he thinks there's more than a one in 20 chance of, of a blowout, something bigger than 14 points. And I'm with Shane. Well, my, my confidence interval would be higher than plus or minus. So my, my, uh, my, my, uh, protest, if you will, was on the 95% tendency that we have when we build these intervals if we it wouldn't be a confidence interval we had that conversation too it'd be a prediction interval um and uh 
And so okay, y'all had that conversation. That's interesting. We okay, did. Prediction, fine. Um, prediction yeah, interval. Eric, fine. Eric called it a conversation interval, and actually, we're and well, uh, and the then our mind, it really is a prediction interval. Yeah, it's yeah. not about a parameter that we with that the uncertainty is in the in the data, um, and uh, the it's a it's a it's the future, right? So we're trying to make a prediction about what's going to happen, um, and what ends up happening. I think what football people don't quite get is that the standard deviation is big. It really is large. I mean. Even every, even though we know everything, if you just predict the standard deviation, the difference of the scores, given all the information that we have about the lines, not just a randomly chosen game, that would be about 14. But with the given information we have about the two teams, we probably still predict it to be between t- uh, 11 and 13. And that's mm-hmm. one standard deviation. So yeah. anybody whose interval is at least 13, I mean, it's, if you're talking two standard deviations to get 95%, yeah. you're talking a massive range. Um, yeah. And... Uh, and I, and I think that's what Shane is reminding us that is it, it's just, it's possible. This can go, this can go 20. This can be done in the first half. Yeah. Because I think, you know, it's sort of like, you know, as we sort of saw with the Eagles San Francisco game, it's like the game, the game of football kind of structurally, like kind of like, you know, conditional on it being a competitive game. We know a lot about kind of what point spreads look like, but there's always this kind of, possibility and i think a greater than one in 20 possibility that the game just kind of gets out of hand for one of the teams yeah and that just you know that you know and then that's you know that's gonna you know i i don't know what you know what, what what's the point spread you know a 95 percent interval for point spreads of a blowout i mean it's gigantic right so well you but, know it's interesting we, we also talked about the fact that that what teams don't do typically and they should do more of when they do go down heavily they need to start taking gambles and uh, coaches generally don't do that early enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I think in the Super Bowl, they may be smart enough to recognize if they do go down by three touchdowns. I, I don't know. I think it's hard for them to accept being in the underdog role or being like the, the, the lower expectation. They just can't, it's, I think it's human nature to be difficult to adjust down to that lower expectation. Yeah. And so in fact, I'll give, I'll give a one piece of data analysis that, uh, that, um, that I and Ryan, my student, uh, came up with since the last time we talked about. We wanted to do. We built a model to try to predict what the coaches will will do in certain key decision making circumstances, like a fourth down decision. And um, the, there's a lot of variability among the coaches, but you can kind of predict what the average coach would do. And the query is: Do the coaches who are on underdogs m- take that into account? Yeah, as, they, as they're supposed to. And the result of that analysis was they don't. <laughs> So Adi, I'm yeah, so right. glad to hear you say that we. I, mean, I, I was in the conference with you, whatever, right. whatever it was, a week, a week or eight days ago, talking about exactly that. I think it's one of the neatest things that could come out. Many neat things, but this is probably the neatest thing that could come out of this analysis y'all have put together. It's like this is. Well, in fact, we're going to talk about it in our Q3 interview with Seth Park now. This taking, you know, increasing variance, but it's so clearly a prescription that comes out of any game theory, economic analysis. And we feel like it's underappreciated in many competitive environments. And that probably has to do with conservatism of the outcome. Like a coach would rather, if they're going to lose, they'd rather lose by a touchdown than three. Yes. And, 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 equivalently, and equivalently, Adi, they'd rather lose in the fourth quarter than in the second. They, 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 they want to extend the competitiveness part of it as long as possible. Even I think there's the just not a lot of good schemes and plays for some of these low probability chances they would need to take. I mean, you know, you can tell a coach that like, you know, oh, well, you know, if you're down by a few scores, go for it on like fourth and 23. Why not? 
you know, what do you got to lose? Well, what play do you have for like, like, you know, getting, you know, for, for successfully completing a fourth. But, but there should be, I mean, they've, they've got a big playbook and they should have contingent strategies depending on game situation. In fact, we know they do have contingent strategies based on game situation. Maybe they don't have enough on. They this. do. I just, I, I, as big as their playbook is, there's not a lot of plays that exist like that. I mean, if you had something that's like, Oh, this is a really good play where I need 23 yards on one down. Yeah. You'd be, Rolling that play but, out but, all the time, but it, but we can think about other ways of increasing variance. That one, that one. I mean, maybe going for it on fourth and twenty-three isn't the right way. Maybe it is the long, low probability pass on third and ten. Yeah, you know that that maybe you're not playing for the first down there. You're you're playing for you're playing for yeah. No, that's bigger. right. Taking a more holistic view of the whole four, you know, the fact that you just kind of have like you just think about all your plays with having an extra down there because you kind of are know you're going to be going for that right. probably opens up flexibility even earlier in earlier down situations. That's right. That's right. I just, you know, and I, I think it's also, you know, most teams just aren't, you know, I mean, like the Eagles, for example, they just don't necessarily have the kind of team design and personnel design that would really f- ideally facilitate you know, a, 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 like a, a, a higher comeback. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that raises an interesting question. We talk about this prediction interval, mm-hmm. which says something about the variance in the outcomes. If we told you a team won by 17, no, let's make it one team wins by 21. Would, would, is it, is, is it symmetrical, which team that would be, or do you think it's more likely that one team? If you told me that the actual point was a blowout i think that would that would increase my probability that was kansas city that was the one i agree with that and i think the kind of i mean i I agree like you i i would have said the same thing a couple years ago when the kc was the one getting blown out in the super bowl so yeah well you're going to be wrong sometimes but but in terms of our prediction this time i think that is informative it's often i think you're kidding yourself if you're if you're kind of working your way through a game you're like well this team might win big or this other team's going to win close, but I don't know who's going to win. You're like, well, you kind of do. If that, if that's your analysis, you kind of do know who you think is going to win. And if we, I don't think it's, I don't think there are very often distribution of possibilities that net out to be even where one team is much more likely to be the one winning in a blowout. And yet in the end, we think it's kind of equally likely. So I think the light, the, yeah, I the mean, team, there, there, it does happen though. I mean, like uh, this is a weird hypothetical too, but um if you told me that the team that was leading at halftime ended up winning the game, if that's all you told me, I think I would actually increase probably the Philadelphia because, you know, it's like sort of like one team is kind of, you know, I don't know if it actually balances out, but like, you know, I, mean, I don't know. I don't kind of propensity for being able to kind of maintain a lead. I know, but the Shane, other team has a propensity for being able to come back better. I don't know how but, those, but, 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 but I think, but I don't know. I, I couldn't you tell the opposite story in that scenario? Cause Philadelphia hasn't had to play from behind. Doesn't really have an offense set up well to play from behind. And so if Casey does get up, I'm going to put them, you know, more likely to hold that lead. And so why not have them be the team that's if, why not, if you told me a team was leading at halftime and won the game, if, if KC's leading at halftime, I'm going to increase my probability. They're going to win the game. Does it help to know, does it help to know that the Eagles had more big wins than the KC did over the season or you don't care, including two very big wins in the playoffs. 
Well, when you lose your starting, the opponent loses their starting quarterback in the first quarter. It loses diagnosticity. I mean, I, I, I'm I, talking I, about I, the whole season. The, I think that the, the whole Eagles, season, different question. Yeah, the Eagles have about depending on how you count, whether you're talking 21 or uh, you know, or what he kind of is a, a one standard deviation or more. They have about seven. I just roughly went through their schedule. Great, you know, great. seven or, or eight kind of kind of big yeah. victories. Yeah. And Casey only had three. Okay, good. So great, great game. observation. Not so a I, balanced schedule, by the way. No, not at all. Of course not. He, has to be versus expectation, get, right? That's right? You want an ELO score with a variance? I mean, that's. I mean, well, no, I no. Know. You want you want to do it like outperforming line in some way, like degree, de, 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 yeah. standard deviation above expect, expected difference or something like that. Um, but so okay, so take Adi. So do we believe that propensity to that, that that winning in blowouts is a fundamental quality of a team. Uh, I would say yes, I I, I do, and I, and I I don't know what well what it is. First, it's diagnostic of high of a high quality team because if you're a good team, you win you win a lot of games. You win a lot of games by a lot. That's yes. that's the simplest explanation, yeah. and that's probably one reason Philadelphia's looked pretty good in our power ratings over the course of the year. But Casey's looked pretty strong all the way too. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, we, it, it, yeah. We yeah. Shane and I want to norm that schedule, Adi. Before we make too much of seven versus three, we want to it's norm. Not. You're right. You're absolutely right. What are you going to do? They might have had a bunch of seven, ten point lines. Maybe not a bunch of tens, but seven, eight, nine, nine point lines, eight point lines, and the Chiefs might not have had as many. Um. Okay. Well, good fun. Good fun. Any other observations about the game? Anything else you're looking forward to or interested about the game? Any any uh, any prop bets you guys are thinking about? I've got to fill out my form yet. We've got this Moneyball form that we're supposed to post, and y'all have all put your numbers in. I, I did. I actually did a little bit of research on some of them um, ahead of time. Not on the number of uh, songs that Rihanna's going to sing. That that one I just uh, just randomly chose a number between like whatever it was. Um, oh, what's what's Hermsmeyer doing his column on this week? Doesn't he always pick some random prop bet to do like a deep dive, a deep analytical dive onto? Like, for example, he did one time on they have prop bets on the length of the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and and he would a deep dive on that in order to come up with an actual. He hasn't done already. Position. I'd love to see a deep dive on like the Gatorade color. That's always like the fun one. Yeah, like they do publish the historical. I'll just say something about yeah. props. They tend to sum the prop, uh, the implied probabilities of props tend to, tend to sum to a lot larger than one, meaning there's a lot of a lot of uh, track track take Vegas take in, yeah. in them. It's hard to find a, a good one uh, because neither side is priced properly, um, except for things like the coin toss. I think you can go plus a hundred on that. <laughs> um, that's that's one no profit for the casino. Yeah. Um, we know if the for a long time, props often there's a little bit of bias towards um, betting the over, and yeah. and I don't know if that's corrected or not. That was a known thing for a little while. Yeah, I did. I in my analytics class, I showed this the uh, I showed historical data on 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 uh, football betting lines and how I think the data, if I'm getting it right from memory here, showed that when the home was a big dog they were much more likely to cover than the um than 50%. It would be the the implied probability. And I showed them, you know, seven year intervals going back to like 1980 and and, and it kept holding up and holding up. And, and then I said, okay, would you like to in, in the from 2012 to 2022? And they go, yeah. And I went, guess what? You're Not there. Anyway. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? No, 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 no. We've just gotten that smart recently. That's interesting. Yep. 
super interesting. And, and, you know, speaking, you brought up the coin toss kind of prop bet or whatever. How's this for a style I, I, I saw recently? The last eight teams to have won the coin toss in the Super Bowl lost the game. It's like 20, you have to go back to 2013. Get get your in-game betting yeah. ready to go. Got a sure thing. Is, is there I mean, an undefeated. advantage There's of that? Toss? Undefeated, undefeated chance. Sorry? Is there an advantage in, in general to winning the coin toss? Certainly not. <laughs> no, no. <I'm> just <laughs> Empirically. I mean, it's usually, I mean, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, most, certainly in the regular season, most teams kind of like to do because strategically you can kind of defer and then, you know, receive the. I think a lot of teams kind of at least think there's a competitive advantage and sort but of. But what's the empirical? We need the, we need the empirical observation. Yeah. And it's not going to. What's the, what's the upper limit you'd give it? In the, in the hundreds of games we've observed in regular season NFL, the advantage to the team that won the coin toss, the initial coin toss, the upper limit you'd imagine ever seeing. 40, 51 to 49, maybe? Oh, I would I mean, go less than that, um, way less than that. Know, 1% true. probability is is a lot. Over, okay. over. Yeah, so this, so we don't think there's a lot there. Okay, I don't very, think it's a lot. Well, I mean, there might be. Uh, again, the deferment, like getting the ball coming out of halftime, you could, you could t- uh, certainly – you could weave a narrative where that actually. Gets I wonder if it's well. Do we see the in-game probabilities change on the coin toss? That would be another way to measure what what happens. Guys, let's talk about a different um, a, a different statistic here. Shane threw up some numbers and asked a ask a question like, "What should we do with?" And we're we're but quarterback one loss record in the playoffs. It gets such a big deal. Now I, we're already on thin ice, I think, because we're attributing a team's record to the quarterback you know it's it's just kind of absurd that way but Mm -hmm. god knows we do it so for example we got brady is this this must be the all-time win number of wins in the playoffs this playoff record is 35 and 13 so not only is a high number of wins the percentage is really substantial i can say yeah 70 percent or so basically we know the interesting thing about brady's career is if, no matter how you cut it up, playoff versus regular season, home away, like in division, out division, it, it it's always like 0. 0.7 or so. Basically. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's not really you can't. It's it's hard to find any combination unless you really go to small sample sizes, like against you know NFC teams or something like yeah. that. Where it deviates yeah, deviates much from 0. 0.7. But but how but should I, we how should we think about it? So I mean, how much should we shrink these? Like so, let's just take Mahomes. I mean, this is yeah. the the relevant one. So Mahomes is ten and three in playoffs. He's three and two in conference championship games, and he's one and one right now in Super Bowl. So at the end of the week, he's going to be one and two or two and one. Ten and three is pretty great. Eleven and three, even more, but it's a small sample. So you Bayesians, what would you shrink? What would you? What's your best estimate of Mahomes's, you know, true probability in the playoffs, or maybe his long term, or the rest of his career kind of yeah. record? It's yeah, like say he wins the Super Bowl and he's 11 like, and 3. Like, let's predict his record in Super Bowls. Let's assume he, or like a, his winning percentage in Super Bowls. It's crazy small sample Super Bowls. It's absurd. Yeah. Eli Manning was 2 and 0. Oh. He's never been defeated. He's 100%. I'm just going to project 100% for Eli. Yeah. Well, we don't you we're Bayesians. We don't project with the maximum maximum likelihood estimator, Kate. Well, this is why I'm talking yeah, no, to but, you. Yeah, no, but but so yeah, well, obviously we all agree it it needs to be shrunk. But where should where should it be shrunk to? Right, because it's, it's like you know, the playoff. You know, you wouldn't want to shrink to 0. 0.5, or or would you want to shrink to 0. 0.5 for these elite quarterbacks? Is is like you know? I guess I'm just pointing out that like you know, we in the regular season you can kind of be like a 
you know, you're going against a wide range of different types of teams. The playoffs, especially, you know, kind of the late playoffs, you know, like something like a 50% winning percentage. Is that kind of what you'd expect? Because you're playing. Playing really good teams. I mean, why wouldn't you? But you're also conditioning on you being an excellent player and team to be in that situation. I think you, I think you, I think you'd have to choose 50, but then the question is how much weight to put on it. Like how many, uh, how many, how, how many games do you need to see from a guy to have his record be 50% of the total weight is one way to think about it. Yeah. What's the sample size, the fictitious sample size in your prior, you're on your 0.5 prior. No, and I mean, quarterbacks. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of, I, I think it's an interesting kind of estimation problem because, you know, other than Brady, I think even the greatest quarterbacks, it's such a small sample size. Okay, I mean, good. No, let's do it. Let's do it with Mahomes. Let's say Mahomes yeah. loses and he's 10 and four at the end of this five years of playoff record, 10 and four freaking fantastic record. Yeah. So what do you forecast for him going forward? And it's not going to be 10 and four, whatever percentage 10, 14 says. But what what do you shrink it to? You're probably going to be higher than 50-50. So your forecast is going to reveal to me the fictitious sample size in your 0.5 prior, assuming well, your prior. Is I'm, I don't have a 0.5 prior. You well, let, that's you, good James for do. chiming in. Me and Shane have been talking about this issue. And you've been sitting yeah, there. Playing. You know, I've just been mulling it over. I don't have a 50. Mahomes a damn good quarterback. I'm not going to 50-50. Despite, I know this is conditional on in the playoffs. Yeah, but I, I'm not going to 50 50 and I would shrink from 10. What is he? 10 and three. Um, but I wouldn't shrink to, to down to 50 50. I might I might use a fictitious prior of 10 games, six and four. How about that? All right. That's I mean, you know, I. That, that, so you're saying one, your prior is point six and your weight is 10. So it's so ba- gonna, almost just it's as, gonna be, almost as many games as he, um, I'll pack the, the past with with almost as many games as we've observed. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're not going to shrink very much in the end because what, what percentage is 10, 14, well, it's about half. five, seven. So I would be going down, right. Instead of, instead of six and four, um, I'd be going down to, you know, point point six five, approximately. Yeah. Okay. So still a, a very good record. In Shane, are you satisfied? Well, this was like, Shane's question. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, and I mean, I guess, yeah, no, I think that's kind of along lines of what I, you, you know, I mean, probably at least, you know, 10, 10, you know, my, the, the kind of like, whatever I'm shrinking to probably like at least 10 play. I would have to observe actually 10 real games to kind of have an equal, you know, kind of an equal okay. weight on whatever the empirical estimate is. Okay. I, think, I okay. think that sounds about right to me. And yeah, I mean, for like somebody who's demonstrably good, like Mahomes, six and four does seem kind of reasonable. Okay, I'm going, by the way, I'm, I, I like this 10-game fictitious sample size, but I'm going to 0.5. I'm shrinking to 0.5, and we'll see what that means. We'll have all of our point estimates. Yeah, my home hater. <laughs> it's from Texas, man. I'm supporting these two, these two Texas quarterbacks. All right, guys, that's been Q1. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We'll do our first interview segment. We're doing interviews in Qs two and three this week. Increasingly, that model, going back to our original model with the middle quarters, 
You guys can also jump in here in this conversation. This is Cade, Shane, and Audie. We're missing Eric. You guys can jump in via Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle there at WMoneyBall or by email moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We love to hear from you guys. Give us your ideas. Give us your criticisms, your enjoyments, whatever you got. We get as much of it as possible onto the air, but we look at everything you send us. This week, this quarter, Michael Lopez, longtime friend of the show. We were talking to Michael when he was just a stats prof, just a stats prof like the rest of us. Now he is a stats prof still, but also senior director of football data and analytics at the National Football League. He has worked there, centers on how to use data to enhance football, better understand the game of football. Fascinating job. One of the most fascinating in the world of sports analytics. Michael, good to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for having me. Love having you. We'd have you anytime, but it's especially fun to have you Super Bowl week. We're there now rolling into the game this weekend. What what does it mean for your job this week, Michael? Or, or what's, what's the league like this week? What's your schedule? Are you going out there? You're... Your your office, of course, your your headquarters is in New York. You're up in Connecticut most of the time, I think. But what's your plan around the Super Bowl? Yeah, so we have a, a good number of meetings out there this week. I, I fly out tomorrow, lucky enough to to get to go to Phoenix. Uh, mm-hmm. We you know we do sort of cover the gambit. We meet with sponsors on a couple of, of league level initiatives that tie into football data. Uh, we also our team is responsible for propping the officials and working with them as as they try to get ready for the game as well. So I think those are the the angles that our team uh, helps the league with the most uh, out in Super Bowl and uh, should be a, quite a competitive game uh, between these two teams. The point spreads, you know, one and a half and two pretty good offenses uh, and, and two quarterbacks that are, are really exciting and kind of represent the new wave of football that we've seen. Well, so you, you just gave us a lot to dive into. We're going to talk about the quarter, quarterbacks here in a little bit and this claim you just made that they represent the new wave. But before that, just help us understand what Super Bowl week is. I think a lot of folks don't understand how much the business of football congregates at these Super Bowls. And it's this big meeting place for almost everybody affiliated, not unlike the draft, like the whole league goes to the, to the, to the combine, but it's at least the football side. Super Bowl is its own thing. There's all these meetings going on. So what's an example of a sponsor meeting that you're having that you said a league-wide initiative on data? What does that, what, what does that look like? Well, I, I think football is constantly looking to innovate and move forward with technology. And, and I, the league is, is right now uh, trying a lot of different things to improve technology in game. And, and so, for example, uh, you know, we've had the first and 10 chain for as long as we can remember. Maybe long term, there's a solution where uh, either there's a, a support system for that, um, but that that could be one area that that could you know football could innovate on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's it's probably a little bit too early to get too into the details, but those are the types of things where you know there are lots of talented groups out there with video based uh, software solutions that that maybe could help ball spotting, that could help game timing, that could help mm-hmm. our officials make decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, th- this is sort of one of the key weeks in the NFL calendar along with draft, along with combine, uh, maybe even opening uh, the first first game of the season. So, mm. yeah, it's, it's a big uh, it's it's you know, you remember at, at moments like these how, how small of a piece we are uh, relative to the uh, the whole NFL, the whole NFL mm-hmm. pie, the, the whole NFL universe. Michael, what you talk about these innovations, how does the NFL think about itself in terms of innovation? And do people do, do people at the NFL think of themselves relative to other big leagues? Do they think about 
versus MLB or NBA? And do they want to be on the cusp? Do they want to be doing more innovation as a part of their identity? Is that how they, one of the ways to think about, like, how do they even think about it? And where do they want to be in terms of level of innovation? So I don't know if it's as much comparing to other leagues. I, I do think, I mean, the motto, we, we're the support group for football operations. And the motto of football operations is to ensure that football is the greatest competitive sport in the world. And that that is kind of one of those things where right now we're in pretty good shape, but will we always be? And thinking about the future of fans watching the game uh, and how the younger generation views sports, thinking about uh, the rules of the game and, and trends in youth and college football and how they manifest themselves when players like Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes come to the NFL. So those are the, the types of forward thinking conversations that that we play a little bit of a part of. We're certainly not fundamental to those conversations, but, you know, it is trying to think about what what do we want the game to look like in 10, 20, 30 years? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, one particular part of it that you've been central to is the sports analytics part, the data analytics part around football. And you've just announced finalists on this year's Big Data Bowl. So, and you're going to do stuff out there, or or at least you're going to do stuff at the combine. The, The finals in the past has been at the combine. Can you tell us a little bit about what you what the big data bowl topic was this year and what are some of the things, if you can even speak about it this way, what are the things that you've seen that you've been excited about from the submissions? So it's our fifth version of it. So it, it's like our fifth year anniversary, which is is kind of exciting. And uh, to be honest, when, when we started, I, I didn't think we'd get to year two uh, or even a year one, much, <laughs> much less, much less year five. So uh, and we had over 400 participants this year. It's a, a record for at least on our analytics side, uh, the, the number of folks. So, mm-hmm. um, and if you look at the the numbers each year, we're kind of growing linearly, uh, which is 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 a good spot to be in. I don't know if we'll always trend that way, but yeah, I mean, our goal is let's back up real quickly: four hundred submissions or four hundred participants. Participants. I think the total number of submissions was two seventy. Okay. Um, so you know, we look at both both metrics as you know sort of keys to you know make sure we're on the right track and. Mm-hmm. You know, this year's theme was O-line and D-line on pass plays. So how well offensive and defensive linemen do. And that's that's not for everyone, right? So <laughs> we, were, we were particularly ecstatic that we were able to increase our numbers while, you know, having a, a unique theme. But um, submissions were really good, you know, really, really clever. And, and we're looking forward to that event, which will be March 1st at the Combine. I, I want to make a couple of remarks about it, Michael, because We've, we've been, our students have participated almost every year. We only had one participant this year. Some of our previous winners are still around and want to enter, but we ended up uh, because the topic was so different. We brought one of our, one of my other students who's an MBA student who happens to be a former NFL professional football player, Brandon Brooks. And he gave us a lecture on the offensive line. So think about what went on. <laughs> and I sat there and I don't know it enough. I never played football. And I, I said to myself, and I actually emailed Cade and, and uh, the rest of the guys. And I said, you know what? This game is really complicated in a way that a fan who can watch game after game after game doesn't understand. And so he was just drawing these maps and explaining how you move this way. And he was also talking about how sometimes you look like you don't do, you didn't do a good job when you actually did exactly what you're supposed to. And it just, it was overwhelming uh, the complexity of what happens on an offensive and defensive line that it, I think it was sort of shocking for, for most of our students who never really played any football at all um, to just even enter this, this domain. Um, and so it was a fascinating topic, learned a lot doing it. So, so much context that is difficult to account for. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, what's an example of something, uh, what's an example of something you learned from all of the, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I, I, the amazing thing is that even someone as steeped in the game as sophisticated statistically as you are, 
Isn't it cool how many things you learn whenever you invite 270 teams to submit some analysis? Yeah, I think one of the things that is always interesting is where where folks go to find the methods that they're going to apply to football data science. So we have folks that are are pulling things from all sorts of disciplines and domains, mathematics, physics, et cetera. And it's like, I don't know those fields. I've never seen papers like this. And it's, but maybe it fits in uh, an offensive mm-hmm. and defensive line. So mm-hmm. th- those are always really neat. Um, ultimately, we don't totally score things all the time, um, but it, it it does tend to lead to interesting papers when you do get uh, folks that thinks out, think outside the box. Mm-hmm. I also think it's kind of an intriguing, like, challenge you know for something like offensive line or defensive line is that you know if if if, if you know the, the big dabble was evaluating like quarterbacks or wide receivers or some of these other positions it's like i i feel like there's a lot more kind of you know i can kind of sanity check my own work because i i i i i, I kind of you know patrick mahomes is not near the top of whatever i'm doing i'm probably not doing it right etc with linemen, I, it's it's more difficult to even kind of have sort of a, a a gold standard that you're comparing to. I guess PFF, you know, grades or something like that might be out there. But can you kind of talk a little bit about how one might, you know, uh, you know what the kind of state of the art in terms of evaluating linemen is right now? It's it's hard, and and for our for us, like our our suggestions for all participants is you can't look at trying to solve the offensive and defensive line in four months. You know, teams have had this data for for five years. And they haven't solved offensive and defensive linemen. So you're not, as an outsider, going to totally change the equation. I think in general, the folks that can err on the side of, you know, focusing on maybe one type of play or one type of position on the line uh, generally tend to have a better chance of accounting for whatever context might might be out there that could be misleading. But it is difficult. I think the all-encompassing metrics, like let's rate offensive line and defensive line, are really hard to do well, just because there is there is so much that that is challenging to get right. Michael, that reminds me of just football analytics in general these days. I feel like you, we've we've had to we've we've had to accept the fact that progress was going to be incremental in 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 narrow little slices, and it's going to be sometime down the road that we can start sewing those slices together as we start playing with, especially with NGS. Um, it's just the nature of the work these days. It's like we're going to go out and do one very narrow thing and step it forward, and then down the road ensemble it together in some way. Yeah, one of the really cool things too is that because we keep doing this each year is even though those steps might seem incremental at the time, folks the next year can take some of those ideas and then mm-hmm. um, spin it into a new theme. So we had papers this year that took some of the projects that won last year's competition awesome. and then updated on those. And then, you know, several papers are also using, you know, our, our famous method from the 2020 rush yards expectation paper. A lot of folks are trying that uh, and, and seeing how it works with, with each new theme. So being able to build, even though those steps are small at the time, being able to build on that is, is a, is a good sign of progress too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's talk about the game. You referred to the, you've referred to the, well, one, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a matchup of teams that were kind of leading the league or top of the league throughout the season. And so it seems worthy in that sense but a lot of people have talked about the quarterbacks. You referred to them as representing kind of the a new, I, I, I forgot the term you used, but you know, the, a new way of quarterback play, a new era in quarterback play. How do you think about this quarterback matchup? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, if you look five, 10, 15 years ago, you know, quarterbacks now are scrambling more often and their teams are calling more designed runs for them. So you know, we have, uh, you know, we, we're tracking that at the league office, not from the perspective of, of caring about any individual team, but just knowing where teams are going. 
And it, it really makes for a, a different game. Uh, certainly very exciting when the quarterback is running around, scrambling, things like that. Um, it also means it's more difficult to officiate, uh, longer times for linemen to get downfield, for example, uh, more time for legal contact and defensive holding, for example. Um, right. So it, it it can make for a, a challenging atmosphere. The, these two teams are, are little and unique. Um, I know we both of them, I think, are in the top five in terms of how often they run run pass options. Uh, you have one team that set the NFL record for sneaks in a season, which is the Eagles. And then I don't think Patrick Mahomes has run a quarterback sneak all year. They often go to uh, one of the tight ends for quarterback sneaks. Um, so you you have the, the, the sort of strange, unique offenses that that come up with d- different ways of beating you. And that's uh, that's quite exciting to fans. And, and it also uh, is a, a challenge, you know, from, from a league's perspective, because it, it does uh, it, it's no longer, you know, line up in I formation and every once in a while throw a play action pass. Uh, this is a, a much different game than, you know, your older brother's NFL. Michael, something we've heard from you over the years is injury prevention. This is something that I, I believe is somewhere in your portfolio or certainly something the league cares about. The game you just described puts at more risk the most valuable player. How do you all think about that? How are you thinking about that? What have you seen so far? And of course, you know, we've seen some very high profile quarterbacks who get plays called for them, be knocked out for weeks at a time and affect teams prospects. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, I think our, you know, just in terms of the number of unique starters at the quarterback position, I think we had 69 this year, which is the most in NFL history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, I should, I should give the, I don't have, we don't have unique participation data in the forties and fifties and sixties, but I I don't think uh, we were seeing as many starters back then, but certainly in the modern era, uh, we had a lot of starters this year. I don't know if all of that was injuries. Uh, I think some might've been performance-based, mm-hmm. um, but when you have all those, you have a, a lot of, a, a lot of teams that are now calling more plays for the quarterback, you, you are putting your, your quarterback at risk. And so it's, the league has taken a lot of steps to uh, make the quarterback position safer. You know, you think about all the rules with protection in the pocket for quarterback. Um, incidentally, that that has, you know, helped at least spur a little bit that that there's now a new way of a quarterback that can now escape the pocket and do a lot of really exciting things. But anytime the, the that player is holding onto the ball, they're, they're also, they can be hit. And, you know, when, when they escape the pocket, they lose the protections that they have inside the pocket. So mm-hmm. it, it does sort of create a quandary you know, in terms of protecting the quarterback. And I think long-term that that's up to the league to find the best balance. It, I forget who did we have on the show talking about, I'm going to, I'm going to screw up these terms, but there's like the homeostatic theory of quarterback risk-taking. It's like the the the, the quarter. It's, this was along the lines of the an interception is a quarterback stat or a sack is a quarterback stat. That the, some guys are just gonna they have a certain level of risk and they're always going to hit that threshold. And it it could be is it, is it the case, Michael, that you know you guys the I don't say you guys the the game has evolved to protect the quarterbacks in the pocket. And they're like, okay, well we'll start running the quarterback more. We're going to keep to some extent putting our quarterback at the same level of risk. We're, we, we care, but we're going to keep on pushing that boundary. And if you make him safer in one place, we'll find another place to expose him. Yeah. I mean, you look at the rush expectation and the rush success of some of these designed runs and it's, it's, it, you can tell there's a reason that they're doing them, right? The, the plays that the Eagles designed for Hertz are, are sometimes, you know, lead to a lot of space and, and, and you can, they're going to go back to the well in key situations. So I, I think it's up to, to both the teams and the league to, to find that, find that balance. But then also if, if you are on a team, you know, there's a reason that the slide is out there. If 
you pick up a first down and you're 15 yards downfield on a first and 10, you know, going for yard 16 instead of sliding at yard 15, you know, is that worth the the trade-off? You know, probably not. So something else for, for teams to, to think about. Mm-hmm. Michael, have y'all started your kind of, do you do an official league in review? I mean, season in review, do you go back and kind of glean where the game is going, where the improvements are, what holes need to be filled and how far into that process are you so far? Yeah, we, we present sort of a year in review to the competition committee, uh, which is usually the week after Super Bowl. Um, so our, our sort of first version of that is, is mostly in, uh, and then we work with them on the rules changes. So, you know, last year's focus was overtime. Every year prior, we did some stuff on onside kick. The year prior to that, we had some defensive and offensive pass interference stuff. So kind of depends on on some of the rules stuff that comes in. But yeah, generally our our initial look at at sort of summarizing the year and data is 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 I wouldn't say done, but the the big part of it is. And um, it was a it was a competitive year for the league. You know, we had I think the lowest average margin of victory since 1932. Um, we did have less scoring, which is uh, interesting. Um, I think. Okay, so hold points. on. You're you're the you're the you're the statistician, and you see. You know, so what do you make? What do you make of that? Those are that's a. Is it just a blip, or is it something more meaningful than that? Low margin uh, victory, drop in scoring. Those go together to some extent. I don't think it has to be binary, right? Like I think there's there's been a trend towards uh, closer games uh, in the last, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, I do think scoring was uniquely down this year um, that, that maybe I don't know if coaches and teams were as ready for uh, that. The, the combination of, of several factors, we have more quarterbacks, which generally means more worse quarterbacks that are, are playing. You're sort of extending the left tail of your distribution, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, is I think one aspect of it. Third down and fourth down conversions were lower uh, sort of in terms of success rate. So I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily put it as sort of like this year is a blip, but I, I do think both trends uh, are are probably more signal than noise in terms of, uh, you know, if, if the status quo stays the same, I think this is kind of what football will look like. Um, but I don't you know. Uh, that's, that's, that's a guess. That's certainly far from scientific. How do we understand that? It feels like the game was going in the other direction for the longest time. And you've just offered one super parsimonious explanation, which is we're playing more quarterbacks and we know there are only so many good quarterbacks in the world. And so that necessarily means we're playing more bad quarterbacks and that's going to influence offensive success. Okay. That's great. In fact, that might be sufficient, but how else might we think about this downward trend in scoring when it seems like, man, all the innovation and the exciting quarterbacks and the, ability to run the quarterback? Shouldn't that go in the other direction? How do these things come together? So, I mean, potentially that you, you are seeing more run plays earlier in the game and teams are waiting to, to, to use their quarterback until they fall behind. I, I'm not sure that's the case. We did see the highest average yards per carry and the most rushing yards per game since, you know, maybe the eighties. So the effectiveness of the run game leads to teams running clock. And I, I think that sort of slowly builds into okay. you know, fewer points then teams need it. And then now they're still able to come back and have close games. But again, that that's, that's not, not exact science there. Mm-hmm. One theory mm-hmm. that I've kind of heard at least espoused is that, you know, we've had, you know, at least a generation where defensive linemen have reached the greater financial compensation, you know, they're more financially valuable. And so, you know, the, the, the generation of athletes coming up, there's kind of like a bias more towards, you know, the top, like athletes going into defense, you know, on the line as opposed to offense. Yeah, I don't know if that, but again, the extent that that's at all borne out, like, you know, is, is kind of 
defensive line sort of performance trending up and offensive line performance trending down. And that might help explain a little bit of the, the kind of lower scoring as well. Quite possibly. I don't think we saw a big uptick in, in sort of sack rate or uh, actually that's not true. We did. This was our highest sack rate in quite some time. <laughs> so I, I have the, the numbers on the, the spreadsheet to my left. So, you know, we had, you know, if I'm looking at, you know, sort of quarterback maze metrics, our sack rate was up about 8% this year over last year. Our throwaway rate, how often teams threw the ball away, that was up. More turnovers on down in the red zone, although I think a lot of that is just teams going for it more often on fourth down. Uh, more three and out, three and outs per game. So, I, I yes, there, there's sort of a manifestation of a lot of this stuff, um, and, and it, it kind of came together this year. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna ride this poor quarterback play, but of course it just raises the question of why quarterback play has down. Other than injuries, why would it be that we just have a weaker population of quarterbacks than we used to? I don't know. I sh- I, sh- I get maybe I should clarify. I don't know if it's totally cor- poor quarterback play. It is. Uh, uh, let me phrase it. So we we saw quarterbacks throwing the ball a little shorter. We saw far fewer deep passes. This was, mm-hmm. I think, also, and this goes against poor quarterback play, it's the lowest interception rate in NFL league history. So quarterbacks aren't throwing interceptions anymore. So they're taking checkdowns, they're taking safer throws. Mm, and taking is sack. that a sign? They're <laughs> yeah, taking they're more sacks. Sack. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're, we're not having, you know, 40, 50 yard passes as often as we, we used to. You know, fewer big passes per game was another one of our stats. So it's, it's a combination maybe of coaching, defensive style, Shane's point about defensive ends and, and, and big time players there, uh, as, as well as maybe just, you know, the natural state of quarterbacks we had, we sort of peaked with, you know, Rogers, Wilson, uh, and, and uh, Brady and uh, Big Ben and several others, you know, five, 10 years ago. Now you, you still have Mahomes and Allen, but maybe they're as much known for their legs as, a, as opposed to their, their, their throwing. Right. And Michael, the way you're talking about this, I'm getting flashes of the, the 1970s era of passing game, which is, you know, like I'm, I'm picturing these like Dan Pastorini chucking 50 yard bombs to Ken Burrow. I'd, I'd love to know this like percentage of passes that were over 20 yards or something pass attempts that yes. were over 20 yards by, by era. And in memory, it was very different back then. Yeah. I mean, my earliest Super Bowl memories while I, of, of watching the highlights, I wasn't born yet, were Lynn Swan with the Steelers. Yes. Where, that's exactly what it was. I think he won Super Bowl MVP for catching three passes in a game or something like that. <laughs> they were three really big passes. And, you know, that that's. There was interference. There, interference, by the way, as a Cowboy fan, I have to tell you, that first one was interference. Well, yeah, I mean, well, and I mean, Joe Flacco and the Ravens invented a whole thing where you don't even have to complete the cat pl- <laughs> plays. You just get DPI on every single one of them. Also effective. That's right. Um, all right. Well, listen, Michael, you, you're got a busy week. It's good of you to join us. We ought to let you go. But before we do, what about the um, analytics community out in Phoenix? Have you got, you, I think you've got some big data bowl alumni in various roles out there. I know our, our alumnus, um, Zach Drapkin is involved with the Eagles, which makes us very proud, but I'm sure he's not the only one. Yeah. So Zach should be out there. I think, uh, I think the Eagles also had Sarah from that same group work with them for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then the chiefs hired Mark Richards as an analyst. Mark was the uh, big data bowl grand finalist a couple of years ago. Uh, and so he, I think, two years in a row was a finalist and one year he won it. So I, I'm not totally sure what Mark does with the chiefs. Um, I'll hope to pry that out of him if I see him. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to see, 
you know, we've had more than 30 folks from the Big Data Bowl get hired by NFL teams or, or league vendors or, uh, or or folks like that. So it's, wow, it's nice to see that, yeah, the two finalists this year both have have some Big Data Bowl tie-ins. Mm-hmm. For Great. competitive balance, are you considering like in the future, maybe you should have a, like a more of a draft for all these Big Data Bowl <laughs> like winners so that like, you know, uh, the Chiefs don't load up? <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll bring that to the committee and see see what they say <laughs> they're all free agents which is kind of good <laughs> all right michael thanks for taking the time man enjoy phoenix good luck with all of it we look forward to talking to you more down the road always fun to talk really appreciate it guys thanks absolutely michael lopez senior director of football data and analytics at the national football league longtime friend of the show that has been two quarters the first half of wharton moneyball come back and join us for the second half after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball, third quarter, another guest segment. This quarter, delighted to welcome back to the show, frequent guest, longtime friend of the show, Seth Partnow. Seth is director of North American Sports at StatsBomb. StatsBomb has a North American Sports now. It's been a fun development recently. Seth writes at The Athletic. He has a book, The Mid-Range Theory, a great book on kind of modern analytics in basketball. Seth has been in the professional game, worked for the Bucks for a while, and in fact is calling in from the Milwaukee area today. Seth, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back, Kate. Good to see you all. Always happy to see you. Always happy to get um, basketball insight from you. Thought about you when we heard the trade that went down over the weekend. Kyrie demands a trade and gets traded. That it didn't happen that way often in sports. The guy says, trade me. And they're like, okay, 48 hours later, or 72, whatever it was traded to the Mavs, no less, which is super interesting in lots of ways. But I feel like too much of a rube to really understand it. Kyrie seems like a, a disaster to me. He's a disaster off the court in many ways, seems to me, but I'm a rube. And so we wanted to talk to someone who's not a rube about the NBA to help us better understand that trade and maybe along the way, basketball a little bit better. So I, I, well, we should also say that Seth has a great podcast. It's called Colin Shots. Colin Shots dropping the G in there. Colin Shots podcast has guests from around the world. Lots of focus on basketball, but not exclusively. And I caught a little bit of yesterday's show where y'all were kind of making sense of the trade to some extent. And I feel like you were still kind of in the wake of it. You were still kind of going, oh, my <laughs> yeah. God. Right. So why don't you just give us your reactions and then eventually let's drop down and like really kind of be nuts and bolts about it. like what in what way does this not make sense? And what way might it make sense? The best case you can make it. If Cuban's not crazy, what might he be thinking, et cetera? So I think taking the taking the viewpoint that it makes sense, I think with any NBA trade, there's always that whatever, just like there's any percent chance that a draft pick doesn't work out, no matter how can't miss, there's always a chance that someone just screwed up and this is just really like crazy. Now, let's assume that they're there, that, that, that the trade was made kind of rationally. Um, the best way I've thought to think about it is, you know, how we often talk in sports analytics, how we wish coaches were less risk averse, risk averse, you know, risk is less less unwilling to go into underdog strategies earlier. Okay. And I think the best way to think about this is on sort of a roster building level. This is on an underdog strategy because it's, it's for some of the reasons you hinted at, it's extremely high variance. 
Okay. Uh, so now I think that for, as a result of sort of so, some previous. Seth, uh, hold on real quickly, just to, to make plain, you're, you're saying, look, a frustration with analytics among the analytics community in general is co- coaches play. Uh, they're, they're reluctant to dial up the variance. In fact, they're often yeah. dialing down variance. And when you're the underdog, the best strategy in many situations is exactly to dial up the variance. And so you're saying really from a roster building perspective, the Mavs to have any chance of competing for titles, which is what they're out, they're out to do. They've got this window, presumably with their star player, they've got to dial up the variance and what's higher variance than Kyrie Irving. So real quickly. So we understand that explain us, just give us the basics on Kyrie. I mean, give us some sense of the variance in Kyrie. We know that, He's not always available, so that's a downside. But when he is available on his game, how how good a player is he? What do the numbers say about Irving relative to the other top players in the NBA? I mean, he is – so the availability question, I think, has to be acknowledged. It has to be acknowledged in multiple dimensions. He's all – in addition to some of the off-the-floor stuff, which is pretty, you know, concerning um, – He's also he is he is very frequently injured. This year he's missed uh, even missing about a dozen games already. Um, it's a it's the mo- highest proportion of his team's games he's played in I think all but one year of his career. So and he's he's been injured uh, and missed significant portions of I think three of the last five playoff runs his team has been involved in. So there's the I I don't think you can jump past the availability point so fast okay. now. As a player, um, he is one of the most dynamic ball and hand scorers in the league. Uh, you, you sometimes hear people talked about as being three-level scores, ability to get to the rim and finish, ability to make threes, ability to score from the mid-range. Um, he does all of those things at a very good to elite level. Uh, he gets to the rim and finishes extremely well, especially for a largely below-the-rim smaller player. Um, he's one of the elite mid-range, you know, one of the elite mid-range shooters in the league in terms of getting those star shots that mm-hmm. you sometimes need. He's one of the best in the league at that. And he's an excellent three-point shooter. Seth, real quickly on these points, um, we, we love talking comps in sports. Who, who's a good comp for him? And this, again, I'm pretty naive when it comes to the basketball. The way you just described him, one of the people I think of who – was a three-level player was Kobe Bryant. And so I'm curious, I'm, I'm, I'm roughly hazarding a guess, like is Kobe a reasonable comp for him and who else might be a reasonable comp? And that is an interesting comp. It's 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 so difficult for him because it's unusual that someone at his size is able to do all these things well. Usually, most, most of the time, players at his size are more stuck in, in jump shooting standards. Okay. In, in some ways, I mean... In the current game, honestly, that that combination of skills—I don't know if they're particularly close neighbors. If was what one was doing that kind of analysis, but like Steph Curry, in terms of being a small player who can shoot off the dribble, get to the mid-range and create, and get to the basket and finish. Okay, okay, interesting. Um, I, I there's a a sizable gap in ability, but I think from a style standpoint, that might be the closest we have in the game. Okay. Speaking of sizable gaps in ability, I went a special trip to Brooklyn to see uh, Kyrie Irving and KD play. KD was out, and Kyrie Irving was terrible. 
<laughs> the whole game was awful. I, I, and which I don't know if there's a, a commentary on basketball, but you know, you get a lot of opportunities in a game. You don't expect someone to just be awful in, in, a, in a game. Which but game I, was this? Which game was this? It was OKC. It was some it was uh, must have been about a, a, over a month ago. So. I think you've you've sort of hit on one of the sort of downsides of Kyrie the player is yeah. um, you you know with that all of that I've just described that it tends to be a very difficult shot diet. Now he's one of the elite shot makers in the league, but that tends to come alongside taking what would be for most players extremely uh, low expectation shots. Mm-hmm. So that opens you up to having games where you go to of seventy. Um, yep. which, wow. okay. yep. you know, and, and, uh, um, so that's one downside. The other down, another downside is he is, um, small, which hurts him as a defensive player. He is sometimes inattentive as a defensive player. And, uh, sometimes we don't, we don't see it referred to as much, but there is a way to play defensive hero ball. We are always trying to go for the steal, always trying to make mm. the switch, always trying mm. to, rather than just staying solid and being your team scheme. And I think mm-hmm. he has tendencies in that direction as well. I can say that uh, uh, my last year with the Bucks, we played the Celtics in the playoffs. And for some reason, late in that series, he demanded uh, to, to guard Giannis, which went about as well as you would expect it to go. <laughs> a 6'2 guy guarding Giannis in a good ball. So, uh, the way I think about it, so, you know, when I guess we're kind of analyzing why Dallas specifically would be the one, I mean, again, if he demands a trade and assume, you know, the, the, the Nets were going to try and meet that demand with whatever, like, is there some way in which Dallas is kind of a particularly good place for him? In, in, and I, I guess one naive way you could think about that is, you know, Dallas is kind of like the Mavericks are kind of a, a good but not elite team. They're kind of, you know, maybe on that kind of, maybe they're more willing to kind of take a chance, you know, on this move because they're kind of on the cusp of, you know, being a contender, but not obvious, kind of an obvious contender, you know, prior to the trade. Or or is it more at a deeper level where he particularly kind of complements something, you know, he's kind of complementary to what Dallas already has there. Do you, were, were they thinking that deeply about it or was it just sort of like this guy is, you know, available and, and, you know, we're the first to jump at him. I think it's more the former. And I think this gets back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of needing to take an underdog strategy in that more as a result of, of kind of previous roster building, either combination of mistakes and bad breaks Um they found themselves in a situation with a roster that was, uh, you know, okay, Luca is one of the eight best players in the league. The next best Mavs player before this trade was probably not in the top 75 players, maybe not in the top 100 players. Right. And But they're at a standpoint where, from a salary cap standpoint, they didn't have many avenues. So with all the kind of risks – uh, attached to, you know, from an availability, from a reliability standpoint. Okay, well, yeah, these are the problems, but that's why he's available for for a player with his talent, his scoring ability, mm-hmm. a relatively low acquisition cost because mm-hmm. of that. So roll the dice. Let's, let's really, 
you know, YOLO. Let's let's uh, <laughs> let's dial up the variance and and maybe it'll work. Seth, can you talk about the compliment complementarity part of Shane's question? What do we what should we understand about complementarity in the NBA and what do we know about the degree to which teams pay attention to it? So they're sitting obviously with one of the great players in the league. You would think that they would be really concerned about pairing him with someone whose style fits him in some way. Is it even fair to say such a thing? Because, you know, it's really hard to, I think basketball may be further along than sports like football, where there are so many more degrees of freedom. Um, how well do we understand complementarity? To what extent is it actually a thing? In baseball, we just kind of roll out the guys. We don't worry about complementarity. Probably isn't much complementarity. In basketball, it seems like there is, but to what extent do we understand that there is? I think we understand it informally decently well. There are some aspects we understand it uh, on a more statistical level. For example, if you look at the value of, of spacing, um, it's, it, that, is an ad, that is a demonstrably additive skill. The third shooter on the floor is more valuable than the second shooter. The fourth value shooter on the floor is more valuable than the third shooter. And the fifth is more valuable still. Um, not every skill really works that way. We know that there are some degree of, um, of rivalrousness in terms of, of on-ball ability. The, the adage, there's only one ball. Um, now, Luca being the player who's annually been first or second in the amount of time he has the ball in his hands in the league. Um, right. right. Having, having another player who could maybe share and diffuse some of that. I think it's, it is hard to prove because the sample size is like two, it's like inventory young. And there hasn't been a lot of experimentation on like what happens to their games. If you kind of reduce the team's reliance on them. Uh, but as a, you know, certainly from a, a theoretical standpoint, it should make things easier because, you know, they, the one of the things about usage, I mentioned Kyrie's hard shot diet, kind of the more shots you take, the harder the marginal shot tends to be. So if you mm-hmm. dial back on, on your usage, you're getting a, a healthier diet of shots, and that probably helps you overall. So I, I love this story, but do we have – but it, it is a story because we don't know how these guys adapt with, with lower volume. And yep. you could say, well, Luca didn't have anybody else to take the – pressure off he had to be the one with the ball in his hands or you could say he needs to and wants to be the one with the ball in his do we have examples of trades where we've seen it go the way this story is going this is actually the relieved pressure was a good thing and it, it is it is a proof of concept i think the i think the best example we have right now is cleveland um okay. i think darius garland and donovan mitchell are to a large degree showing how uh, two players with overlapping skill sets can complement each other. Um, we've seen less good versions of it typically with, in, in, for example, in Philadelphia with James Harden and Tyrese Maxey, where there hasn't been sort of the synergy where each player can, is, is not equally good, but they are both effective on or off ball. And, and so that's the, the good version of that is what we're seeing in Cleveland, where both Garland and Donovan Mitchell can play off the ball, can be floor spacers, can be second side threats and are willing to do that, willing to be an active participant in the offense without the ball. Um, and that's, 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 that's sort of what you hope for, you hope to see. Now, thinking, I was going to say, too, like maybe as another – like thinking back, I just remember like when, when Golden State got Kevin Durant, I remember a lot of the talk. You know, I mean, obviously, to the extent that anybody kind of worried about the, you know, worried about Golden State after that was like, well, again, there's only one ball or, you know, are, 
are, are they going to be able to kind of share effectively between Curry and Durant and all this stuff? And I think history obviously bore, bore out that they, they were able to manage that pretty well, but, you know, kind of looking over history, is it more often like, like kind of, is it more often the case that if you put a bunch of, you know, kind of ball, ball, ha- ball handlers together, that th- does it end up working out complementary more like more often or less, I guess is what I'm uh, asking. That, that's a great question. My sort of semi-studied opinion is it works less often than, than uh, and that's, that's maybe more of an NBA style thing where players get very used to, I have the ball. And if you always have the ball, then sort of your your muscle memory for, you know, off ball movement and stuff like that. And that's, I think, the big reason why it was, uh, it was I mean, first of all, just from a talent standpoint, they just kind of bludgeon people. With, you know, you've got two top three players in the game. You kind of win a lot just because of that. Um, <laughs> but both, both Curry and Durant are among sort of the most plug and play superstars in the game because of their ability to move off the ball and, mm-hmm. and to seamlessly kind of shift between those two roles and, and their willingness and, and comfort doing so. Yeah. Seth, can you give us a couple of additional examples? Because we are talking about this skill um, that maybe doesn't show up on, on tables or charts very often. Other great players in the NBA at playing off the ball. And so guys that can handle the ball if they need to and can dish, but they're good off the ball. I mean, generally speaking, it's it's guys who, who can who can shoot a little bit. Um, an interesting kind of counterexample to that uh, was Dwayne Wade. Uh, they, it took them a little bit with with the, the Heat team with him and LeBron because he's Wade was never a good a, a very good range or very willing range shooter, but he became such an effective cutter. Where in a situation where a lot of players were kind of spot up on the wing, wait for the ball to come to them, he popularized what what people call the 45 cut where it's sort of you kind of come from the wing through the elbow straight at the basket. So when your man helps off of you, instead of like spotting up for a, for a three, you're diving down the lane, catching the pass and dunking on everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's sort of an unusual example, but mm-hmm. um, man. What about off, to... how, how dependent is it on, on scheme? So presumably the warrior scheme is kind of, maximize it's like both requiring it and taking advantage of how good curry is off ball um phil jackson with the, the with the bulls you can say obviously a related scheme um to what extent, it sounds like it probably would be somewhat scheme dependent and to mm-hmm. the extent that that's true what kind of scheme do the mass play so it is scheme defended and i think it's it's in the case of having it work having players who are um good enough readers of the game that you're actually playing more or less structureless. Um, And I, and and that's not saying everyone's just running around. It's like, there's some basic concepts. And then within that it's read and react and find the spot, find the movement that makes sense. Given the game state Um, you mentioned, you mentioned the triangle, I think is a lot like this. Um, And that's why there are players who probably couldn't function as well in it because Mm -hmm. they couldn't make these reads in real time. And you know, with the Warriors, with Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Steph Curry, Andre Iguodala, you have a lot of players who can. And frankly, it's why Kevon Looney is much better for the Warriors than a player with superior physical talent like James Wiseman is, because he can do that. Um, the Mavericks are a little more—I don't want to say structured, but they're—they're they're certainly less flow. 
they are they more resemble kind of the the rockets era maverick uh, uh rockets than they do the warriors in terms of the balls in lucas hands and he's sort of mm-hmm. hunting for a mismatch and then mm-hmm. operating at his own pace and either he scores or you commit to him and and then the defense is is in at a disadvantage okay um we, I think we've always, because of his range of skills, we've always kind of wanted to see Luca do different things a little bit, not just stand mm-hmm. at the top of the floor and dribble. He's mm-hmm. very, he's big for a ball handler, so have him post up, have him play on the baseline, mm-hmm. have him be a screener. Some, I think this this deal opens that those possibilities up. Whether he is willing to do those things is whether he's ready and willing to do those things is, is an open question, I think. Okay. Well, let's broaden the um, aperture a bit and talk about what it means for the West. Another question that people act as if we know more than we actually do is, is the importance of matchups. So what do you think it's going to take for the Mavs to come through? How does this change that calculus? And I note that on 538's power rankings, that certainly sends Mavs flying up the board. They're now um, second most likely chance, according to 538 again, of winning the finals top out of the West. But, you know, right there below them is the Nuggets. And I know you're a big fan of Jokic. And so it, can you talk a little bit about both the matchups they will have in the West and how the trade changes that? And then the West in general, how do you, how do you see that stacking up? It's, it's, it looks at least according to people like 538, much more interesting. You've got, kind of equally matched teams in some sense, Mavs, Nuggets, Grizzlies out there buying. And of course the Warriors lurking versus the East where at least according to 538 Celtics are kind of head and shoulders above even the Bucks and 76ers. Um, I am, I am, I am skeptical of, of that uh, bullishness on the Mavericks in part, because I think that the the sort of the, um, the degree to which the two players will cannibalize um, each other's kind of production. I think that hasn't really been factored in to uh, to how that's going to look yet. I mean, Kyrie has played a bunch of the season without Kevin Durant, and uh, yeah, Doncic has played the whole season without really a second star. Right. And then you, so there's a little bit of of kind of the edges of what each other do is going to nibble away. I think if they're kind of depending on you how you figure value. Um, yep. So I think that that you know. In a player-based model, I think that that the the degree to which those roles will change and and shrink, frankly, has probably not been accounted for yet. And and that's that's you know I that's not a criticism. That's just a that's just something that we don't know how to how to really adjust for yet. But let's um, just say it's it's fascinating and problematic that you you see these high tr- profile trades, and what you're saying is not only is it not creating value, it's hurting the additive value. Because because of, you're just speculating. Of course, we're all speculating, but they have had such singular roles on their team so far that you're saying not only because you want these trades that create value and all of a sudden it changes the floor and all of a sudden the value, the third guy is even more valuable or whatever. But it's it's not unlike, I mean, I'd be curious what the post numbers said about the Durant going to the Warriors, but it's like, how could Durant extract as much value as the fourth great player for that team on top of the other three, there's just no way you can take his value from OKC and drop him into Golden State and have him have the same. So it's just this interesting thing where you tend to want these trades to create value, but there's such singular stars coming from these 
singular roles that it's hard for them to have the same value. And, and I mean, maybe it's just sort of like, I mean, there's creating value and then there's creating additive value. And I think what we're really talking about is it's, you know, we're like, to, we want to project what the Mavs, what Kyrie adds to the Mavs and, you know, what we, what you're observing, what we know not to do is you can't just add his stats on top of, you know, on top of, but you know, plug in. But plug we're speculating, in and, we're speculating that, that that's what 538 did, because that, that's probably yeah, no, the that's model, right. relatively additive model they're, they're working with. And, and I think it's just a weakness of additive models in these kind of contexts. And I don't know if there's a better, I, I, at this point, I'm not sure there's a better way to do that sort of right. if we, if with a sample right. size of zero games. Right. Um, until we figure out a way that we can, you know, predict what a player will look like when you kind of adjust the sliders on their role, if you will, and know what that looks like, yep. uh, then, then it, it, it's just, that, that, that's a, it's something that is just, you know, we probably know more practically than is knowable statistically at this point. <laughs> not wonderfully humble of you. Okay. So how would you, if you're not, if you're, you're not as bullish on the mass, which is, which is perfectly reasonable. How would you characterize the Grizzlies and the Nuggets and where are you on Jokic these days? So the, I'm glad you brought these two teams up. This is, we're in a, in a, in a period of transition in the NBA where there are no like perfect teams. So there are things about both of those teams where you would, in an era where there is a more dominant team or a couple of, of real, of really dominant teams, there are things about each which you would probably find, I don't know if de facto disqualifying, but largely disqualifying. Okay. Um, there, so, for example, the Nuggets, um, they, there's not a lot of evidence of a team playing a, as you know, they, they have not been a good defensive team this year. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence or, or track record of a team playing a below average defensive center, big minutes in, in sort of the modern three point era and having playoff success. Now the flip side of that is, well, okay. None of those bad defensive centers have been Nikola Jokic. So we're kind of, yeah. we're off the map in multiple directions here, but yeah. still that's something that's something that's worried that to be worried about. And you know, some of it has been personnel dependent in terms of they've been missing Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. for large portions of the last two playoff runs, but they've kind of gotten diced up by exactly the kind of players you would expect to dice up a, a team with a, a poor defensive center in, in, in the last couple of years playoffs. Um, the Grizzlies, um, uh, do they have enough shooting? Um how does their a lot of their success over the last few years and this year a little too has been based on on kind of depth and that matters less as rotations shrink and it's it's more about top end talent in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the biggest questions question for them is frankly the part of the reason why they are they are where they are this year is uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. has taken a tremendous step forward. Always a very talented player. Um, the idea of him has tended to be better than the. Okay. execution in large part because he, he in the past has been very very foul prone and this year uh last year he started to fix it but he still was more foul prone when he was playing at center and we talked earlier about having the value of having multiple shooters on the floor he's a good shooter for a big so if he plays the five you can have more shooters on the floor, on the floor. whereas if he plays with the center you have fewer and that hurts them but he was very foul prone as a center and less so playing with the center this year, that's kind of equalized. He's, he's cut his foul rate down overall and has not seen the same kind of splits when he's at the four or the five. So that's something to be optimistic about, but at the same time, we still got to see it in the playoffs. Yep. 
Yep. Right. Well, it's fun to have the Grizzlies kind of sneaking up in the conversation. They're obviously an exciting young team with one of the most exciting young players. And so it'd be fun to see them play a little bit longer. One last question, and, and then we're going to, have to let you go, but we're on the trade deadline, staying in the West. Should the Warriors make a trade? Are they going to make a trade? Do you think it's in their best interest short-term, long-term to make a trade? This is the the Steph's recent injury where he's going to be out quote weeks, whatever that means, um, complicates things. I have not been a fan of the supposed two timelines approach they've taken where they think they can develop young players to be the next version of stars. I think you're with them. If you're going to be realistic, your championship window lasts as long as Steph is a, is an elite level player. Um, and in that regard, assuming he is healthy enough for them to make a run, they absolutely need more. And if that involves trading, um, you know, one or more of their younger players for that, I think they absolutely should attempt to do that. Which of those players and what do you get? Those kind of start to become very complex questions. Um, mm-hmm. But I, but, you know, I said the same thing last year and they won the title. So what do I know? <laughs> Well, it's it's an even bigger topic of conversation at this trade deadline, but you're saying philosophically, you're saying something like, or at least this is what I'm hearing, you just don't, you're not promised these windows. Most franchises don't have these windows. You've got to do all you can to take advantage of it while you can. And if you you might, you might be trying to, you might, they might be trying to be too cute by making it through the windows while still investing in the next generation. That may not be enough to get them there. Uh, all right. It's hard to be good at everything. Right. Yeah. It's hard enough to do it with one generation, but try right. you know, to cultivate the next generation while with this one. All right. Um, well, listen, Seth, man, good fun. Good fun. Thanks for making time with us. Um, ha- enjoy this uh, deadline. And then we'll circle back with you later in the year to see how things are going. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Seth Partnow, you can find him on uh, on The Athletic. You can find him on, what did give us again your Twitter account? Because you're a good follow there as well. It's just at Seth Partnow on Twitter. Easy at Seth Part now. His book, The Midrange Theory, is a great book. And also keep an eye on StatsBomb. They're doing interesting things all the time. And he works there as director for North American Sports. Seth Part now. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter of Wharton Moneyball, another open topic quarter. Hey, Massey hosting along with Shane and Adi. We've been in here for the whole two hours. Eric Bradlow is out today, but Eric will be back. Just out of our interview with Seth Partnow, that conversation followed an interview with Michael Lopez. So the first hour of the show really was football. Talking basketball this last half hour, good fun. We increasingly pay attention to basketball when football rolls away. Trade deadline, lots of stuff on the news, fun to talk about. One other thing from basketball I just want to point out to you, Nate Duncan, uh, we've had Nate on a couple times. He has a great podcast. He calls a game, an alternative broadcast every week, which is a lot of fun. He posted this thing in the last day or two about high-quality matchups. It came out of an observation. He went, some team, you know, they, they lost their best player, and by the time they got him back, they, their opponents kept on not having their best, one of their best two players. And so he wondered about how often an NBA game doesn't have the two best players from both teams. And two is an arbitrary number, of course. But 
it's shocking how often this is the case. And it, of course, the chance declines as the season goes on and injuries stack up and resting the players stacks up. It drops early in the season. It's roughly two-thirds, 0.6, two-thirds, and it drifts down to about 38% of the time. Late in the season, three months into the season, you're looking at less than half. If you go to a game, randomly pick NBA game, of seeing a team, both of whom play their two best players. And then they he also stacked it up by team, so just kind of where it stands right now. And they fess up to like not I mean, some subjectivity in who is the two best players. But Boston, by far ahead of everybody else, 65% of the time, they are participating in a high-quality matchup rate down to, man, Minnesota, Memphis, Clippers. Let's just say Memphis, Clippers, Pelicans, and Phoenix below 20%, below one-fifth of the time. It's a feature of the NBA people have lamented for a while. Long season, lots of resting, lots of injuries. But that's I, I, yeah, one thing I liked kind of about it was – to kind of dig into that, how much of it is injury versus load management, right? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, and, 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 right. and obviously the two are kind of like – correlated with each other because even you know you have a player that's out from injury and you're going to obviously manage their load like coming when they come back and stuff right. like that as right well. so. that's exactly right and the teams are better about doing that than they used to be but um from an analytical perspective i love that they did this because he took this kind of qualitative idea and maybe a frustration we have watching a sport and operationalize it now we can track it now we can dig in now we can argue about it we can refine it or whatever it's kind of the birth. It's a small statistic, not that vital a thing, but as a fan, it's pretty relevant. And we get to see kind of the birth of it this week, which was fun. Um, all right. Another sport that carries our carries the weight of the winter is NHL. And Shane, you threw some really fun stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, it's, it's, you know, we're kind of coming out of the all-star break. So it's kind of a you know, kind of a natural time to sort of like, you know, take stock of where where the where the league's at you know i mean we're over set we're over halfway in terms of the number of game you know kind of games played but you know it's still pretty close to the halfway point and you know i was just kind of you know a couple notable things i mean first of all you know as, as a guy who we, we've often talked about like tournament design and stuff like that i don't know if you were aware kate about the like kind of the format they use for the all-star game shane i'm gonna admit i don't like to admit it but i'm gonna admit i had no idea they did this this is yeah. fascinating say, say more about it yeah, so I mean, basically, you know, the NHL, the way they do their kind of quote unquote all star game is actually kind of a series. It's a three game playoff. So they basically have all stars on teams, you know, kind of within the divisions. There's the four divisions in hockey. Yeah. And they basically have essentially like a semifinal like matchup and a yeah. final matchup. Yeah. Each one of these games is only like, you know, two 10 minute periods, it's three on three plays. So it's kind of very fast. It's, it adds up to a total amount of like one game worth of gameplay, but it's this kind of really yeah, cool right, right. divisional thing. And I, I mean, again, I, you know, I like it just cause it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, you know, they, they, they kind of, I think have, you know, taken the opportunity, like kind of knowing that the all-star game is never going to really replicate a real hockey game anyway, uh-huh. you know, um, because, you know, the just players want, really want yeah. to hit each other and all, you know, it's, it's going to, it's structurally going to always be different than a real game. They've taken the opportunity to just kind of experiment with kind of drastically different formats. I wish, yeah. honestly, I wish major league baseball, you know, we've, we've long lamented that the, the all-star game in major league baseball is not like a real game yeah. either the, you know, cause the players are coming in and out. So, you know, so rapidly and stuff like that, you know, it'd be kind of cool if they, 
just decided to like experiment a little bit more with kind of the format. Well, yeah, and we saw with the the NBA did do that with the scoring rule. That in 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 actually both cases, the NHL innovation you're talking about and the NBA scoring rule both feel like it takes it a little bit more back to like pickup game style. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it just kind of is people, and which makes it fun because we've all none of us have played professional. Very few of us who are listening, but all of us have played pickup, and it's just fun to kind of um, identify with it in that way. Well, that's that's good fun. Um, I saw some of the skills competitions um, on TV over the weekend, which they looked like they were having a good time. Yeah. And of course, skills and skills in hockey are neat to watch, and so um, I thought that was a fun addition as well. Now, coming out of the break, we've been talking about the Bruins all year. Mm-hmm. Um, and our Kraken, our Kraken have snuck up to the lead in the Pacific. Yeah, this is yeah, yeah, year yeah. two, so, I mean, right? This know, is year two. Yeah, year two, year two. Um, so, I mean, I guess they took their time compared to the Vegas Golden Knights. They, you know, that went to the final in year one of their expansion. But no, I mean, right, again, right, right. we now have basically, I think, relative to sort of historical norms, both within hockey and compared to other sports, to have expansion teams do this well this early on in the kind of their yeah. franchise career, you know, trajectory. I mean, I think it's pretty unusual. It's, it's pretty notable. And I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. if it's just, again, you wouldn't want to read too much of a trend into two data points or anything like that, yeah. but um, you know, maybe it does say something about like, you know, that there's just a lot of talent out there in the NHL that like, you know, you can actually assemble sort of like, you know, a lot of some pretty good teams out of kind of, Right. You know, or, or these they've, they've structured, I guess, the expansion draft in a way. Well, that's a big that's that a big part of it. Right. Because they 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 leagues learned. I'm glad eventually they learned that it's not good to make the expansion team like the laughing stock for the first 10 years of its existence. Yeah. We, Shane, you're too young to remember. Adi might not have been paying attention to pro football, but I'm stamped as a child from the first expansion that I was familiar with was the NFL adding the Seattle Seahawks and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Buccaneers quickly had the longest winless streak in NFL history. They went 0-26. These are 14-game seasons. They didn't win a game until the end of their second season. And this is just kind of what happened yeah. to some teams yeah. back then. In. in my memory, I didn't live it, but the Mets were absolutely horrendous when they, yeah. when they began. And they had managers like Yogi Berra and Willie Mays playing for them, but that didn't save them. <laughs> right. Well, so th- I give props to the NHL. We, w- we of course, want to give Namita Nandikumar, our former student, who is one of the analytics folks with the crack and credit. But we probably ought to be more generous and give some credit to the wise expansion draft, as well as to the crack and people who executed that draft. Shane, you also randomly, I don't know where this came from, but you gave us Gretzky's childhood stats. Yeah. And if you don't think you're interested in Gretzky's childhood stats, that's because you haven't seen Gretzky's childhood stats. They are spectacular. Yeah, no, so, I mean, this is from like, and it's kind of funny, like, because I, I, you know, obviously I, I, I played hockey at an early age, you know, and this is kind of like represents sort of the, this is Gretzky's stats from like the Adam level, which is kind of the last one I sort of like. What, you know, how old are stage, kids in the, that. we're going to see three years of his Adam level stats. What, how old are Adam level kids? Um, Like, I think like 11 to four, like 10 to 13, 11 to 14, okay. somewhere in okay. there, you know, okay. so like, you know, kind of, yeah. And I mean, it, it, it kind of, um. It's it's unbelievable. So like just like take his like let's say his age twelve or thirteen year, he played eighty five games and no 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 got to got to start us with this first year. Just got to build up to it, Shane. You got okay. To. All right, all right, all right. It, it's only going to get more impressive. He played sixty two games um, in his first you know I guess age call it age ten year. Uh, sixty two games played one hundred sixty seven points 
in those games. So in those games, he's getting a little more than a goal per game and he's getting an assist per game. And you look at those numbers, you're like, oh, those are solid. Those are very good numbers. Of course, very good numbers, but like, okay, great. That's, That's how he starts. like along the line of what he did in the NHL. Yeah. Second, second season in Adam, 76 games played, 316 points. <laughs> so now hold he's on, so doing... Hold on, hold on. He's doing two and a half goals per game, a, an assist. <laughs> yeah. Then the last ga- season of Adam... 85 games played 517 <laughs> points, which is over six points a game. He had 378 goals in 85 games. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I just, I, I, I would love to see footage of that. I, I doubt footage of this exists, but it's kind of like, you know, I, when the world cup was on, like they showed some video of like Messi as a, like, you know, a, a 10 or 11 year old, just like running circles around everybody. Oh, on the this field. Is so great. And I yeah. can only imagine, Greg, I mean, six point, you know, there, you know, there, a game is high scoring. If both teams together score like six goals to actually yeah. have, Six plus points a game. It's unbelievable. And just so, to, get, to give you kind of perspective, Gretzky is, you know, in terms of points per game at the NHL level, he ended up like his career was like 1.9, which again is is the highest ever. But, you know, that just, you know, just to kind of norm that a bit. To, right. Like, six plus points per game. So Shane, you're, this led me to look at these historical stats. Yeah. So Gretzky at the top and then Lemieux right behind, right behind him. This is something that maybe Lemieux doesn't get quite enough credit for. No, no. And I mean, like, that's the thing is I think, I mean, most people do consider Marilyn Lemieux, like the second best hockey player ever to play the game. But I think they don't necessarily realize that like, because he was in two, like he didn't have a, a chance to really have the cumulative stats comparable Gretzky in, in, in his career because of injury, you know, they're, they're one and two and, you know, Gretzky's at 1.9 points a game. Lemieux's right behind him at like 1.88 points a game. And then there's a big drop. Like the third well, best player is like down at 1.5. Yeah. To be, to be that far off the right tail says a lot about those two guys, but I do want to say it led me to find out a little more about Mike Bossy. So number three in career NHL points per game is Mike Bossy. And, you know, I'm not deep on hockey, but I would have thought that I would have known of somebody that high up. So like Connor McDavid is the highest active player. He's yeah. number four. Bobby Bossy, Orr, who Bossy just passed has, away. is the all-time leader in goals per game. Okay. Well, yeah. he only he didn't play that many years. He played like a 10, 10 years and it was with the Islanders in the late 70s to early to, to the 80s, late, late 70s yeah. to late 80s. And he must have been spectacular to watch. And something must have happened to him. And the Islanders, well, yeah, I mean, knees. Uh, basically, he injury, that, unfortunately. In that era, you'd lose a knee, and that's it. That's the end of the Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, one of the things that this conversation is uh, reminding me of is, is uh, one thing I did with my students this last week was we were discussing DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak, and I remarked that it's often considered the most unlikely um, of all sporting events in the sense that it's so impossibly, unimaginably uh, unlikely that someone would do that, hit 56 games. I then posed to the class, um, what, would, what other event is, is in that, late, that category might you think of as competing for that prize? And we went through a bunch of possibilities, but I think we kind of converged on anything, something, something to do with Wayne Gretzky. Is is got to be something in that like ridiculously the oh, way I nuts. phrased it was how many how many seasons of the sport more or less encapsulated in a time in a time bubble that things don't change would you have to go until you see that record be surpassed and uh, for DiMaggio's streak it's something like ten thousand years 
And the question is, how many, how many, tens, how many years, thousands of years of Good Lord. before? Is that true? Get, yeah, is that true? Is that true? It's and a you lot of like, with the, uh, the change of the game. Um, nobody, uh, nobody hits with that kind of average anymore with um, that okay. few walks. Yeah. That, I, I have a hard time believing we've observed anything that only happens every 10,000 years, unless it's some involves some non-stationarity. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think probably like, I mean, there's all kinds of Gretzky records you, that could probably fall in that category. Probably is points per season is the one that like, I think is again, because of the way the game has changed, uh-huh. it's not going to get touched. I mean, you know, the record, he he's had 215 points um, in one season. And if you look at kind of like the record for points per season, you know, he's got like the first five or something like that. It's the first 15 (laughs) are all like Merrill Lemieux and Wayne Gretzky, basically. And, you know, I mean, you really got to drop down a long ways in the standings to get anywhere. Like, like there's not not a current player in anywhere, even in the top 50 of this. Interesting. Okay. a, a, A player since then hasn't even gotten to, you know, like a player in the last 20 years hasn't even gotten to say like 150 points per season. And Gretzky's record is 215. So can we, speaking of these, these, these stats um, that you put into the, into the, into the, into the rundown, you threw some baseball stuff in there that I think is interesting. I'd like to, and we're not going to dive into it quite as much as I love it. Of time, but <laughs> it's basically looking at team level stats across the last whatever 15 world series champions and the what was presented here is just the rank the ba- the rank one to 30 for the team on that stat and it groups some offenses and offense and pitching mostly with a couple of defensive stats in there and one with more time i'd want to walk through them all because i, I don't even know what all the stats are and it would help me to kind of get more educated but two, I don't see I don't see that much insight here. So I'm curious what y'all are seeing when you look at these things because right, it's so not I, like it's not like it's oh it's always a better offensive team or it's always a better pitching team. So I I went through it and um, what's interesting is the only this this what you went to ask is which is the stat that has the highest sort of average rank um, and if that's some sense the measure of the if you had to have one thing about a team that you would want the most of. What would it be? And it's right. And it, it's probably slugging, um, which is a pretty good number. It's how many bases you get. It's, it's an it's a, it's an offensive stat. But, but um, Audi, there's just kind of barely. You know, that's that the, just on, kind of barely, on the right. median the median World Series champ over the last twenty years has been sixth in slugging that's on right. base percentage sixth. But what is WRC plus? So WRC plus is a funnier one. That's a rescaling. Uh, so OBP is, is, is percentage of time on base. Sure. Weights the uh, weights it traditionally one, two, three, four and WRC plus is fancy, right? So it has linear weights. It, it adjusts for park. It adjusts for okay. era. And okay. that's a little worse. So it's, it, if it's interesting, oh, it's but only touch, but only a touch, only a touch worse. Only a touch is by rank, but one ranking position might, might be something. Um, it's interesting that the traditional money ball ones, which are OBP and slugging, those are the, the highest two offensive. Right. But and, as a group, the, the um, pitching are, are one or two notches down, which is pitching clearly matters, but seems to be a little less. And if you okay. kind of look at just very broadly um, categorize a team like, 2018 Red Sox. Okay, this team can freaking hit. 
Yeah, yeah they're, they're solid, but not so good. You know, 2009 Yankees, this team is unbelievable hitters. So solid, decent pitching. So by, by the way, yeah, what you, what, kind of- real quickly, let me just clarify what Ozzy's saying. The 2018 Red Sox, they're first in the league, batting average, OBP, and slugging. The 29, 20, uh, 2009 Yankees, even more, like ones and twos across the board. Right. And, from batting. And, just like, and like, so on the other side, 2022 Astros, they're a dominant pitching team. If you just look holistically, there seems to be more dominant offenses than dominant pitchers, uh, okay. uh, defenses on, on and the art. It's not statistically, I don't know, you want to make a big deal out of it. Yeah. One observation is like, it's incredibly hard. It's very, you, there's not a team on this table that I think is, you know, super top across both offense and pitching. I mean, there's trade, you know, it, it, it's hard to have the other. a really dominant team across both. I mean, the closest one I'm looking at is the 2020 Dodgers were pretty top in both pitching, but you know, that obviously like was kind of a short season, you know, yeah, you know, that that was kind of a weird season anyway. Um, 2004 Red Sox were damn good in both. Yep. Um, Yeah. 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 They were were absolutely horrible in the defense. I mean, like the worst defensive team in among the last 20 years. That's interesting. (laughs) They get to get away with it. Hey, the other thing that jumps out to me here is that one, one column in from both the pitching side and the, and the hitting side, just doesn't look good at all. In fact, they're all, it's kind of inversely rated. I'm wondering what these columns are. What on the hitting side is BSR? Base running. running. Oh, no wonder. And then GB percentage in pitching. Uh, That's ground ball percentage. And so ground ball percentage just doesn't seem to matter. It's really all about strikeouts and walks. So fifth is uh, is that number. Those those things, that's the the most obvious thing from the chart is that those stats aren't important. Base running and fielding is also not so important. I mean, those are the, so it goes hitting, pitching, then it goes uh, hitting and pitching and then defense and then base running and defense is nearly at the mean is 15, but base running is below the mean, which is, you know, 15 and a half or 16. Well, I I, I do, Adi, I think part of your enthusiasm for this exercise is you can kind of characterize teams that way. It's kind of fun to see what jumps out, especially. Yeah, no, and I mean, like, it's kind of like, you know, team building, you can go either way. I do think it's notable, too, that, you know, the Red Sox have four four World Series this time. It's always offense. They've never had a good, really good pitching team other than 04 was the closest thing to a good pitching team, but. You know, they're they're one that kind of, you know, always seems to win it with offense. I don't know. What about the 07? I was going to say the 07 look really strong on the pitching side of things. Oh, I guess, I mean, yeah, you're Entirely right. decent right. with hitting, but they're yeah. even stronger on the pitching side. Yeah, you're right. So that's All right, right, guys, let's take the last couple of minutes and um, hit a couple of points that came up at the end of Q1, just as we went into break, and then give our predictions on the game. Rolling out of the show, we need to call the game that we'll be watching this weekend. So what happened there at the end? was a couple of things. One, we were, we were going through this exercise of asking what do we think our forecast would be for Mahomes' playoff record going forward because he's got this spectacular 77% and we were kind of laboriously doing our shrinking. We just want to summarize. Our collective, um, um, our collective estimate was 0.67. So we're, we shrunk him from 0.77 to 0.67 um, going forward just for what it's worth to put a a fine point on that. And then the other thing that happened was that Adi was talking about lacking him because he's a baseball player. Well, he's you, not you just were, a baseball player, but he like, he looks like a baseball player. He looks like a midfielder, an, an infielder out there. A pitcher, a pitcher, an infielder. I mean, a couple of things you, you were, you, you shrunk the most on Mahomes. Yeah, and I was yeah. saying, well, I'm not shrinking so much because I like him. And you asked me why. And I <laughs> said, right, he's like right. a baseball player. And then Shane I mean, throws like a baseball player. 
Shane busted out uh, Tom Brady. He's like, no, 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 he wasn't the last one. The best one's still what about Tom Brady. But but what was the stat on Tom Brady? This is well, of course I'm gonna make it about Tom Brady, but Tom Brady, <laughs> when he retired, was the last professional athlete to be you know still active to be drafted by the Montreal Expos. It's <laughs> just so Isn't that crazy. That's just absolutely fantastic. One yeah. that the last professional athlete drafted by the Expos would not be a baseball player. Let's right. start with that. Um, and then two, that is the Expos. I love all things Expos. It's just because it's they're just a such a iconic franchise from the seventies that doesn't exist anymore. Um, well, the team name doesn't exist. Guys, we got a minute to go. What is your take? What's your prediction? We want numbers. The line is Eagles by one and the over-under is about 50. So that's, you know, chalk is 26, 25, 25, 24. Where are you? Let's hear your numbers. I'm going to go um, under. You know, Mike Lopez made a lot of, you know, we talked about like defense. You know, I, I'm going to go under. I think it's going to be less scoring than uh, people sort of expect. And I'm going to take the Chiefs by three. Ooh, taking the Chiefs. All right. Yes. He wants a quiet. He wants a quiet Sunday night out, <laughs> out, out his yard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a block off broad, so I don't. I, you know, I'm, I'm cheering against revelry. No, I would love for the. I would. I'm cheering for the Eagles to win, but I think the Chiefs by three. All right. All right. Can I go next? Is that uh, I'm going to I'm going to go with the Eagles, and I'm also gonna, and I'm going to take them by three, um, and I'm going to go. I think the under is the right way to go on the on the total, and I'm not right. why I'm just going to go for it. I'm going 28 21. I'm not. I, I'm not challenging the total at all. I'm going Chiefs by seven. Wow. <laughs> all right, eager convinced me on your interview with them last week. All right, guys, that has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics. We'll do it again. Come back next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.